Hey, this is Matt Dwyer, and I just want to invite you to check out themattdwyer.com. That's my website, where it's a landing spot for all things that are the podcast, like my Patreon page. For $5 a month, you could become a Patreon subscriber. You get bonus blogs, bonus content. A lot of my interviews go two hours, but I only post an hour. So there's the part two there. There's episodes in their entirety that unedited a lot of stories that you might not hear in the podcast. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber. There's also merchandise. You can buy t-shirts and a phone case. I think those are the only two things I have right now. But you can also find my social media and see the past episodes. Every episode is on there. Um, you can see oh, a lot of my past guests. You might discover some people you didn't know were on the show and be like, holy shit, he's had Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips or holy shit, he's had Danita Sparks from L7. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, buy some merch. Thank you. This is how I talk about you. with Dwyer, or you could just call it Dwyer. Everybody just calls me Dwyer. This is a music podcast. Speaking of music, the song that played me in is called Rabbit. It is from the album Married. It's by Killsbirds. And my guest today is Nina Leggetti, who you heard singing. And she is great. She's also a filmmaker. We talked about a lot of great things in this episode. Some things I would say for the first time ever on this podcast, but I'm not going to tell you what they are you got to go listen to it and see what it is yourself. But she's a fascinating, great person. We had a wonderful conversation. And if you like their music, and you should because it's great, do what I did. Buy the album. The Bandcamp link is in the show notes. Nina's website is in the show notes. Support music. Don't just stream that shit. That's lame. <laughs> Buy. I bought it. And, uh, and that doesn't make me better than you, but it makes me a better music fan than you. So if you love music and you love your artists, you have to support. Um, also, in addition to plugging the hell out of Killsbirds album, Married, I'm going to plug uh, two other things. Two, oh, by the way, there's extra footage of my conversation with Nina on Patreon. We talked for a long time. The ex Just so you know, so you can go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber. Also, I'm going to plug two books by friends of mine. Relative Trauma is a book of poetry by Nina Garofalo, who is also in Ganser, who's been on my podcast. She sent me an early copy of the book. I read the poems. They are fucking great. She is a great writer. And there was something that just, they resonated with me. I don't know. Her poems, they speak to me, man. And I think they'll speak to you as well. Uh, links to buy that are in the show notes as well. And my friend, longtime friend, God, I've known her forever. We lived in Chicago together. We used to buy records together. We bought, I had 90 Day Men. I had uh, Brian Case from 90 Day Men on. She was with me when I bought my very first 90 Day Men album, CD. Uh, their first album, my first album of theirs, I own others because I buy music. But Elizabeth Virginia Poirier has a book out called Nikki Come Home. Links for that are in. It is a novel. And it's, uh, I've known Elizabeth for a very long time. She's a very creative and brilliant person. And the book is about a 27-year-old hard partier, Nikki Dickinson, turns up in Queens, uh, Queens Hospital after going missing for 22 days, 12 of which she has a zero memory of. 
Uh, Elizabeth is a great writer, and uh, we used to work together, so I can vouch for her creativity as being unique and um, something you want to... I have a copy of the book. I'm going to get to it. I haven't read it yet, but I I have faith in my friend Elizabeth Virginia Portier. Um, So links for all these things are in the show notes. Purchase things. And then there's also, if you need a website, my partner, Kelly R. Dwyer, Builds websites, kellyrdwire.com. She's also a fantastic photographer. But she does my website. She does the My Favorite Murder website. She does Ology. She does political campaigns, personal websites. She does it all. Go get a website, would you? She did mine. But I didn't have to pay her because she's my partner. But I do do all the cooking in this house, so there's that. Anyway, that is it. Please enjoy my conversation with... Nina Legetti of Killsbirds. She is rad. This is a great conversation. Thank you very much. Right now I'm applying for U.S. citizenship. Right now at this very moment. Oh, wow. So I was like checking, you know, you have to type out like every time you've left the country over the last five years because they want to make sure that you're spending enough time in the United States. So I was sitting there like... How long was I in Canada three years ago? <laughs> like, how many days was I there? And then I'm like, oh, gosh, I forgot. And then I'm, like, scrambling to find the Zoom link. But I'm here now. And my application will be submitted today. Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad you're becoming a citizen as the empire crumbles. Your timing is perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's me. I'm always really good about my timing. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel about my timing. Are, yeah. How does... How do you, is that a, as a, a guy who grew up in this country and is, I guess, cynical, how does that, how does it feel to be becoming a American citizen? I've been wanting to be an American citizen since I was a child. You know, I think growing up as Canada is an amazing country, you know, but I think, you know, being exposed to American culture growing up, you kind of see it as this place that you need to be, you know, you know, America is a place where all your dreams come true, where you can really, you know, you know, create roots and you love the life that you want. So I've always wanted to be an American. I always plan to come to school in America, stay here, become an American citizen. And I still want that, but you know, I would be lying if I said that it's, I'm not aware of how weird the timing is. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> like it's definitely, you know, I don't want it any less, but I feel like we're, we're entering uncharted territory, uh, you know, as a nation. So as a world, <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I don't think it would be any easier going anywhere else. You know, I don't think going to more like Canada or the United Kingdom, any of that's any easier. I think obviously everything is very uncertain now. There's a lot of turmoil and, but I'm really excited. I'm, I can't wait to enter that office and like hold my little American flag up and say the pledge of allegiance that I've like had memorized since I got here. And then to be able to vote, I've never voted in my life. So wow, very excited. Yeah. Very excited. Do they say when you become an American citizen, do they say, okay, now you have to eat at least 25 hot dogs a year? (laughs) No, but there is a question here. I have a question that I was asked, which I I have to say for the record, I said yes to 
I won't go into detail why I had to say yes. It is a part of the American constitution, but it does ask you, like, are you willing to, if the law requires, bear arms for the United States of America? Like, that's a question you have to answer, as well as, have you ever murdered anybody? Have you ever participated in it? There's like a lot of very serious questions that you have to answer. <laughs> um, I, just, I just, there's so many ironic things about it. Like, have you ever killed anyone? Because we as a nation have slaughtered and decimated thousands. <laughs> well, it says, it's like, have you ever been involved in genocide? Have you like, ever... Like the United States has. <laughs> yeah, well, you know... I come from a country where they were where there was a genocide against my people. So that was an interesting question to answer. There's yeah. also have you ever been involved in torture? And have you ever tried to kill anyone? Or have you ever tried to hurt anyone on purpose? Obviously I've answered no on all those questions, in case you have your doubts. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh it was it's been a it's been a nice morning. I'm very excited. I'm excited. It is. It is do you hear Americans being cynical about this country and from somebody who comes from Bosnia think you don't know, like you don't know what hardships are or is there any sort of viewpoint that you have that we sort of are, I don't know, cynical about or whatever? No. Um, I think actually, interestingly enough, um, some aspects of the way this country has been operating the last few years, the disconnect between the two parties, the, you know, one side is right, one side is wrong. There can be no other way, you know, like the lack of uh, unity in this nation reminds me a lot of how Yugoslavia was before it broke up in the early nineties. It's very similar and not just the early nineties, but you know, the same thing is happening in Bosnia today, which is very terrifying. There's a, there's a Serbian leader who's threatening to secede, who's, you know, spewing out racist and nationalistic rhetoric and it's causing a lot of tension over there. You know, a lot of those things, there's a lot of parallels, you know, so I can't say, I can't say that Americans are luckier, unluckier um, anymore. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, Americans have privilege that other countries don't have, you know, the freedom of speech, you know, the, the, the choice to be pretty much whoever you want to be the very reason why I came here, you know, but, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't want to speak like I'm a, you know, a political scientist. I don't know very much like I'm just, this like my observations, but it's, 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 it reminds me a lot of, of Yugoslavia in the nineties and Bosnia today. Um, sadly. So it's, it's interesting to me how, nationalism is like a like it's a worldwide i don't even know if trend that makes it sound like you know parachute pants or something but it's like <laughs> it's like i don't i i, I giggled to myself with that one but it's I like it's it's alarming because it is going on in france i think I, th- I think it's france is having an election it's like real fucking scary and close and it's like why why is it like is it fear is it is it fear? Because like, I do think like things like looming climate change, we'll get to your music. <laughs> okay. So that's what we're talking about today. <laughs> or, you know, whatever your favorite salad is. I like, you know, I like a good quinoa or uh, a <laughs> salad. 
have to get back to you on that one. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, I also like, I don't, cause I've read a decent amount of articles about you and it's like, do you, I don't want to talk about the things you've talked about a thousand times. And I find this fascinating because I feel like a lot of, I don't know. We don't, I think you're right. And we need to sometimes to need to refresh our perspective in this country or as individuals. I don't mind talking about Bosnia a million times over, especially now when there's like some serious things going on there that, um, Oh, I meant like Dave Grohl and stuff. Oh, no, I was enjoying talking about this, but I didn't want you to think like, I didn't know if you were thinking like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> no, I, I like, I, first of all, like I love Dave girl. He's the fucking best, but I also loved, I, I, I love and sometimes prefer talking about Bosnia, particularly in instances where there is like a lot of turmoil going on there. And it doesn't um, appear to be um, talked about in American media, but I think yeah. it's important to, um, that, that people are aware of it because I think if anything, it can be a lesson uh, to others as well as a, you know, kind of a wake up call. Um, maybe it'll, you know, people will sense some similarities between what's going on there and, you know, what's happening here. Um, but it's very scary. Um, but we can also talk about Dave. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it is scary. And I think you're right. Like this, we're right. And uh, the being so polarized in this country is fucking bad and i have to and not to sound like one of these guys but i don't think the media helps it at all and i think to sound real like a real fucking leftist weirdo that i am i feel like the the ruling class prefers the people to be polarized because then the workers and the people who are poor can't unite and fuck shit up i think that i was quoting marx on that one fuck shit up Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that sounds about right to me. I, like, again, like it's such a, it's such a hard, it's so hard for me to get into these conversations when I'm in the shower and I'm talking about it. I sound so like eloquent about what I'm saying. You know, I'm like, you know, using all these big words and phrases and I write things down. I'm like, that sounds, that sounds exactly right. Nina. But then when I actually am asked about it, I'm like, I don't really have no clue why this is happening. You know, I really don't, I don't know how to solve it, but it really scares me. Um, it scares me because I love this country. I love America. I worked 12 years to get my citizenship and I'm scared that it might not be the country that, um, you know, I thought it was going to be for much longer. That terrifies me because, you know, there's so many divisions. Uh, it also scares me to see the same thing happening in Bosnia, that this Serbian leader is referring to Bosnian Muslims as second-rate people, that that he's, like, throwing celebrations and denying that the genocide ever happened. Like, all these things really terrify me. I, and I don't know why they're happening. You know, maybe they've always been happening, but it's more intense because of media. Maybe COVID amplified things. Maybe it's like you said, the environment. Yeah, I think people are scared, and I feel like it's an unprecedented time. Like I was just reading before we uh, started talking about how, like, a therapist says that eight out of ten clients talk about climate anxiety, and or ten or like out out of eight out of ten of the clients that talk about it are teenagers like so it's like something adults are just completely avoiding which is weird and i think of my daughters and i'm like 
what the fuck kind of future do they have? And I think this kind of fear really hits people at their core and they, that's, they start grasping onto things like fucking Christianity to be angry. <laughs> but, like nothing against, but it's like, you know, we clearly have a Christian right in this country. And I think the things that are happening with the Supreme court and abortion are, that's the, uh, that's a, probably about 30% of the country would agree with that. And it's like fucking terrifying that the, that, that is affecting the majority. It's not how it's supposed to be. Yeah, or maybe not even just so much Christianity, but a perversion of Christianity. Yeah, that's more or, accurate. You know, yeah, I don't know. Did you, know. you, your your family left Bosnia in circa 91? 92, so 92. I was maybe you, 14 months old at that time, did yeah. they have to flee? We had to, yeah. My dad was <clears throat> in the military, a Muslim in the military, which again, uh, there was a genocide against the Muslim people in Bosnia and, um, a lot of tension arising between Serbs, Bosnians, Croats. And, you know, my dad was caught in this, you know, in a, between a rock and a hard place of like wanting to fight for his country, but then being told that, you know, he could be killed if he left. So we left, um, our last name kind of gave us away to, um, exposed us to, hate crimes and discrimination. Again, being um, an Albanian last name, Muslim last name. So we we fled as, as soon as we could. Thankfully, my dad knew what was going on and we were able to leave. My mom and I actually left on the last plane that ever flew out of Sarajevo before the war started. Otherwise, I don't know what would have happened, you know? Um, probably would have survived, but we probably would not have had a very good life for a long time. You know? Um, yeah, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that, you know, we did, we did go and we went to Canada. So, um, yeah. In 91 or two, a friend of mine asked me to help some friends move. He didn't tell me what the situation was. He picked me up and we went to the airport and we picked up some people who were refugees from Bosnia. And, like we went and got furniture, we moved it into this place and then he didn't tell me what the fuck we were doing. And then we went to the airport and picked up this family and there was other family members there who they hadn't seen each other in years because some of them were in camps and it was like, and my friend was just like, it was just like, I was grateful my friend included me in this because it was a beautiful moment and then we went to their new home and, but they were doctors and they were like people of like, you know, society and whatnot and they had to come back here they actually ended up making their way pretty quickly through the world and this is in chicago but it was just like i would have never seen that world and i would have never met those people and i would have never understood it the in a different way than just reading that shit on the newspaper you know it was like it had an and it stuck with me for fucking ever still to this day i thought about it two days ago that's awesome that's cool that you got to experience that and that your friend help them out you know yeah and i hate moving furniture <laughs> but, but as soon as I, I was just like i was so grateful and it's like they kept offering me cigarettes and i was like oh i have cigarettes and they would not take no for an answer and my friend was like they want to give you things because you gave them so many things today or you helped oh, that sounds that sounds about right that sounds like <clears throat> yeah you know people from that region, the Balkan people. Yeah. I smoked a lot more cigarettes that day than I ever had. <laughs> 
That also sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but the coffee was excellent. I'll say that. That was that was also stronger than anything that I'd ever had. Uh, Turkish coffee? Yeah. Mm, yeah, my my dad makes that every day. He like grinds the coffee beans by hand. Um, I don't know what it's called, but it's like a long cylindrical thing that he uses to grind it. And yeah, Did, was still... was that similar to when you went to Canada? Was it, or did you have connections there? How did that? I guess you don't really. I mean, obviously, you don't remember. It. You were fourteen months, or you you're pretty brilliant, though. You might. No, I don't remember. I mean, I remember my earliest memories are watching my parents watch the TV and seeing, you know, that the war on TV and seeing, you know, their faces and their, you know, their pain and what, you know, struggling to, you know, you're watching Bosnia be destroyed from thousands of miles away. You can't do anything about it. Your family's still there. You know, I, I experienced that through my parents, but we had a couple of family members that lived in Canada, but we weren't even eligible for refugee status. So we really had to kind of, my family, my parents really had to start over, you know, my dad had to, you know, work at a roofing place for $4 an hour to get my mom through dental school again, because her, her dental credentials weren't valid in Canada. So she had to start over, you know, That's uh, my crazy dad to me. Yeah. She, she had to, it's that to me is like a very heroic part of the story is that my mom was able to come to Canada and like, really be like, fuck it. I'm going to do it again. I don't care. Like, this is what I want to do. I, I have time who says that I can't at 31 years old, start over. So she does, she becomes a dentist and she ends up having her own dental office. She just only recently retired. That's fucking badass, man. She's a fucking badass. She was on the cover of Costco connection for being like an epic immigrant story. (laughs) That's awesome. And as a guy who's a dad, I don't know what clicks in like DNA wise, but once you become a dad, you fucking love Costco. They, my parents do love Costco. It's crazy. Yeah. It's I don't know if it's like hunter gatherer shit. That's just you know I don't know. But it's. Do you feel like you get any of that those traits from your mother? Because that's a pretty great role model. Totally. I'd love to. You know, I want to be like my mom. You know, I want to work hard like my mom. I think. I think the difference between my mom and me is that I obviously had more privilege growing up than she did, you know? So I need reminders from her that, you know, sometimes it takes hard work and things aren't as serious as they seem or as devastating as they seem in in any given moment. But she's really the person, her and my dad, the people that I turn to, to give me the strength to keep going when I feel like, or when I have felt, still feel, will feel like giving up, you know, um, and everything I do, it's ingrained in me to do a lot of it for them. I have this like intense need to, to live up to all the sacrifices that they made for me and my brother, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of Americans were so far removed from our immigrant generations. Now I, not so much as some, but I think people forget or they have forgotten of what that struggle is. And now people are just like, I want my flat screen. <laughs> like, like their entitlement is pretty, you know, it's such a materialistic country at times. And that's, we've become entitled. I think, I think we're spoiled children in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, also those, like, racist, you know, fucking rhetorics where people are like, oh, fucking build that wall or we don't want immigrants here. It's, you know, that's ridiculous to me because I think immigrants work harder than fucking anybody else, you know, because they don't have a right to be here. They have to earn their right to be here. Yeah. You know, and they have to... They have to like follow the rules, work harder than anybody else because they don't have any groundwork. They don't have the, the privilege of having like um, ancestry here or generational wealth. You know, they're coming like it's literally ground zero, starting over. Some of them are starting over in their like when they're already like in the middle of their adulthood, and that's also scary. You know, yeah. But they finally manage to do it, and they they make this country run, and. I'm so fucking proud to be an immigrant, even, even though I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, like I had the means to be here. So my story isn't even like a smidgen of like, you know, as difficult or as heroic as like what other, what some other people go through to like get here and stay here, you know? Yeah. That, that the word I was talking about this the other day to a friend of mine, how lazy the word lazy has been used as a propaganda. Everybody says the the Irish were lazy, the, the Italians are lazy. It's like it's like the oldest trick, and people keep using it, and people keep going, "Yep, they're lazy." And there's a documentary where the Chinese are about a factory, and China opens a factory in Ohio, and the Chinese assume that the Americans are lazy. And I'm just like, it's crazy. Like every country, everybody calls each other lazy, and it's like that's just it's like such an absurd notion. I'm yeah, lazy. Have- Let's get that out there right now. I'm lazy. <laughs> Shame. Shame on you. (laughs) No, I think, I think we have to give each other more credit in general. You know, I think we have to be more kind and welcoming to each other. We're human beings for fuck's sake. We're people like that. This whole, like that's not to sound hippy dippy, but we're all like borders and all this fucking stuff is bullshit. It's just some shit, some frightened asshole, probably a guy created. (laughs) <laughs> maybe more than likely it was a white guy well, it's like the new episode of south park that came out where at the end of the episode they're like let's just take it easy on each other like we you know the whole mat like let's just go easy on each other like we've all been through like a really hard couple of years like let's just like you know not be so mad at each other if somebody like makes a mistake you know yeah um, <coughs> compassion empathy yeah. those are it, I, yeah I don't know how we got here. <laughs> I don't either. On some weird like immigrant tangent, which I fully agree with. But yeah, I think I'm just feeling emotional um, these last few days because of what's going on in, in Bosnia. So I think I'm feeling a little bit more uh, like sensitive to everything. I think it's painful to see what's going on there. Do you still have family there? Yeah, my cousins, my grandparents, you know. Um, the majority of my family and all of my extended family still there, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to, to, to see that. It's hard for me to see like that fucking asshole saying those things about, about Bosnians and Croats and, and, and I don't think he's representative of the Serbian people at all. I think he's just representative of a small, like nationalistic faction, you know? And I think, he's creating that tension where, where it's totally unnecessary to, I think it's just the same thing 
hear. You know, you have few people that are talking louder than everybody else, you know, trying to represent a whole group of people. And that's just completely wrong, you know? So. Yeah, that's, I worked for a comedy website when Trump started running and we did stuff about him every day. And I was like, you know, we should fucking stop doing this. Right. Cause we're just adding to it. I was like, we, if we stopped paying attention to it, but it's like, you know, that shit would get hits. And that's the same with a lot of the news. They're like, Trump gets ratings. And it's like, you irresponsible fucks, you're causing the problem. <laughs> it's like basic Noam Chomsky stuff. Absolutely. Like SNL asking Donald Trump to host. And then when he gets elected, they decide to like make fun of him then. It's like a little too late for that. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't yeah. have had him on there. Shouldn't have given a pl- him an, a, a platform, you know, but Yeah. What part of Canada did your family move to? Windsor, Ontario. Borders uh, Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, I've been there. Oh, yeah. Stephen Colbert calls it the asshole of the world in a book of his. (laughs) That's not very nice of Stephen Colbert. (laughs) 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 That was a big spot for Americans, because I'm from Chicago, but people would go up there before they... You know, when they changed the drinking age to 21, so 18-year-olds would go up there and drink and hit the strip clubs. Oh, yeah. that Yeah, totally. totally. I went there on tour. I played Detroit and went to Windsor. I can't remember if I went to a strip club because I was that drunk, and I'm not personally fond of strip clubs. Wait, where did you play in, in Windsor? No, I, we just crossed the border and went drinking. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. And gotcha. if I did play Windsor, I couldn't remember because I was that drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like a similar story that i hear from everybody that comes to windsor it's just like i went there to get drunk i don't remember what happened except when i was in the airport going to detroit a guy was like do you know this place called cheetahs like a strip club in windsor like he he directly just asked me this complete stranger if i knew of the strip club because he used to go there with the boys when he was younger awesome so, there's a lot of strip clubs that seem to be called cheetahs, and I think I'm going to start confusing everyone and open up a burger chain called cheetahs. You should. Just to and be like... A, a figure of a woman as like a... <laughs> as the mascot. I just, I don't know how how cheetahs and stripping became... How that happened. Like, cheetahs, that represents naked women. The fastest <laughs> animal on earth. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not the best person to ask. I'm not the best person to ask. I've only been to a strip club twice. I, I think I only ended up at them because friends dragged me and I never, I don't know. It just was never it just seemed weird to me. Yeah. Both times I've gone, they were like, not because I wanted to go, you know, but I ended up there because somebody wanted me to be there. And both times I've seen things that like, I, you know, wish that I could forget because they were all, they were both like, like fully nude, like male, like men dancing strip clubs, which I didn't realize is a lot more like interaction between (laughs) (laughs) the the audience and then the strippers. So, you know, I've seen some things I'm, I'm thinking of a very specific time in new Orleans when I've seen some things that I wish I could forget, but, um, yeah. yeah, I'm all for it though. All for it. <laughs> <laughs> was was there a innate creativity in your family? Was the, was because it's obviously you're an insanely creative person, which is 
Oh, as a person who's like, oh, I'm going to talk to a person about their creativity. And then when it's someone like you where it's like, oh, what doesn't she do? I would, I didn't even, so I'm glad we did not go in that direction, but I'm just, when did that spark happen for you? Strip clubs. To, is there any- <laughs> <laughs> well, um, immigration to strip clubs. To- <laughs> I know this is, yeah. <laughs> we are covering it all. Soon we'll be get into uh, marriage counseling and, uh, childbirth oh exactly yeah childbirth that's that's where this will end (laughs) then we'll go get tattoos exactly oh i love that no but creativity in the family yeah my mom was an actress when she was young but like she so they grew up in yugoslavia socialist country they had these like things where like the town would get together and the kids would come up on stage and do little monologues for Tito, you know, who's the dictator at the time. So my mom did those as a kid and she frequently won first place. Like she was, you know, like people loved her performance. And then my aunt, her sister took over and she was also like a wonderful performer. My aunt is now a cinematographer and my dad, he, loved writing poetry so he still does that but again like at that time and especially the economic background that he's from he grew up very poor he didn't really have the the option to say like I'm gonna go to school and become a poet like from the time that he was in high school he was already in military school and that's what he did his whole life so yeah I'm the first person in my family um to like actively pursue a career in the arts yeah as far as I know. Is, is the country that you're from, is it more of a, do they embrace the arts? Unlike, that's another thing I think America could probably, we could embrace the arts a little bit more. Creativity. Uh, well, I don't think that Bosnia embraces the arts in the sense that they're like funding the arts, you know, but a lot of incredible artists come from Bosnia. I will say that Canada is amazing for they are. and supporting the arts. Like, that that is like one of the reasons why I'm so proud to be Canadian because they really put arts at the forefront and they really give artists like a chance to like not just like do their art but to like survive doing their art you know and to live doing their art and that's so cool um but Bosnia no like I know my my aunt recently said that when Tito was in power he openly welcomed any art um and he also welcomed art that would criticize the regime <laughs> which is unusual for a dictator yeah. and I'm by no means trying to sell you on Tito. Like I'm not trying to sell you on that, but I think that Yugoslavia certainly has like, um, you know, or now Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia has like arts at their core, like especially music and, and film, you know, and that helps kind of define the culture of the country for sure. Yeah. How did, did your parents respond when you started showing signs of creativity and and wanting to pursue it my parents were always like you do whatever you want to do like they supported me like a hundred percent and I think part of the reason why they did too is because they never had that chance so I think both of my parents were like we made it to Canada we're surviving here like we should not stop her from doing anything she wants to do like why would we do that you know so they've always been very supportive of me and uh, only recently, though, did they see me play with Kills Birds for the first time. They saw us open up for the Foo Fighters in December. It was the first time my parents ever saw me perform live. <laughs> 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 I 
And folks and who Nir- moved here in the early 90s, they probably were well aware of what the fuck Nirvana was. Yeah, they no? were. <laughs> they were, they were, they were. My, But it was very foreign to them, you know, because they didn't understand that youth movement and, and that, you know, the voice of the youth at that time was Kurt Cobain. Like they didn't get that. Um, particularly my dad, he was like, he's like this person, he looks so sad all the time. Like, how is he representing these kids, you know? And then when I got into Nirvana, he was a little bit nervous. He was like, I know what punk rock is and I know what classic rock is, but here's that sad man again. Like, why is my daughter relating to that? I don't think that he understood like other aspects of why Nirvana was so impactful to Gen Xers, but that's like, that was his outside view. Of course, my aunt, who's 10 years younger, she loved Nirvana, you know? So when she came to, to Windsor, you know, she was listening to them. Yeah. It did. Is that the initial kind of music that you were drawn to was more punk and nirvana-ish type stuff no uh i the first album that i remember listening to and this is like do you know the band sabotage it's like a like a metal band from the 90s that became the trans-siberian orchestra it's like an operatic like metal band that sounds more familiar than sabotage but i probably couldn't point them out in a lineup type of thing yeah i i like that because my aunt ended up meeting and marrying who is now my uncle and he was into thrash music so he exposed me to metal and then i of course like i loved britney spears i was really into eminem because when he came out it's like all you heard on detroit radio and so i was obsessed with eminem and um I was into like rap and pop and metal for most of my childhood. And then I discovered Nirvana kind of late, like, cause I didn't have any like younger sibling or older friend or older sibling or older friend to like introduce me to stuff. So I discovered Nirvana on my own when I was like 15, you know, it was pretty late. And that's kind of when my life really changed, you know, it's like Nirvana. And then I was like punk music and you know, that was that. I never thought of that, like, and I don't know why I would think about it until I talk to you, but like, because Detroit has such a definitive sound and scene and multiple scenes and definitive sounds that having an influence on Windsor music, especially like shit like the MC5 and the Stooges, that early stuff. Did that bleed over into to your world at all or just Eminem? Just Eminem, because it was like what, whatever radio stations, uh, you know, Detroit had, like we got in Windsor, you know, because it's so close. So we would listen to like 93.1, like the pop stations at that time. And it was just like, um, it was just that music, you know, and um, I love that. I got into that and that, that's very much what I listened to. But also, to be honest with you, like. I never had an emotional connection to any music that I listened to as a kid. It was very much like, I I like music, music's cool, but it never really defined me until I heard Nirvana and then subsequently punk music that like really kind of, no, not kind of, that like fully changed my life. Like there's like two Ninas, one before and one after, you know? Really, I know it sounds I, like stupid and cheesy. I know exactly what you mean, though. I know exactly yeah. what you mean, and I would like. I felt like 
I was always searching for something musically that I identified with, that something that spoke to me. And -hmm. I would find pieces of it in certain, you know, and like punk was definitely a step towards it. And then like Jane's Addiction, I was like, oh, we're closer. And then when I heard Nirvana for the first time, I was like, oh, fuck. Like it was a definite shift. And I felt like, oh, this is something I can relate to on many levels. Yeah. And I think for me, it came to me at a very particular time in my life when I really needed to relate to something that was coming from like an emotional, angsty place, you know? Um, and, and so like, you know, I'll never forget the day that I heard smells like teen spirit, like, but I'm hearing it on LimeWire. Sorry. You know, <laughs> like I'm hearing it like on LimeWire, like downloading it, like being like, Oh, like what's this, you know? And then like, just feeling like goosebumps and feeling emotional and feeling that like, like, like I finally had some purpose in my life that I wasn't, you know, aware that I had before. So yeah, but it came at the right time. I don't think that if it came at like any earlier, I would have, I would have, uh, I would have taken to it. Did, as- did that inspire creativity within you or inspire a move towards, I want to do music? Yeah, I got, I asked my uncle, I was like, I want a guitar for my birthday. So he like, scoured Windsor for a left-handed guitar because I'm left-handed and I was like I'm gonna play I want to play left-handed guitar I don't want to play right-handed guitar you know and then uh I started writing songs in my journals and every single one of them was absolutely terrible (laughs) just like the worst music like ever like the three chord like didn't know what I was doing but then I I stopped abruptly at one point because I like I had a difficult experience in high school with like a, a, like a teacher who was like very abusive and he kind of like made me like, he made me feel like I couldn't, I could never be a musician and I, and I couldn't sing and I, I, I need to stop before I, you know, get ahead of myself and all sorts of things that happened with that. And I listened because I didn't know any better. So I stopped doing music for, a while until I got to New York and then kind of did it anyway. So that, I, that hurts me to hear that. And I must've hurt. I can't imagine. And I have moments in my life where I can relate to that. So I think that's why I, I empathize with how that would make you feel. I mean, especially when you love something for someone to be like, no, no, and it's manipulative and fucking evil. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty. He was pretty evil. You know, there's that book, a really great book I read recently called Trust Exercise. Um, I want to make sure that I get the writer the writer's name right. Um, oh yeah, Susan Choi, and it's about that. Like you're in a drama program at high school, and you have this enigmatic dra- drama teacher. And I and I very much like understood what that book was about because I experienced very similar things. But when you have like a very imbalanced relationship with a person in power, a lot of people will know what that relationship is like. You know, um, people who have experienced like varying degrees of you know abuse or injustice. Uh, it's very hard to not listen to somebody when they say things like that to you, when they tell you that you're not worthy, when they tell you that, um, you can't be this, you can't do that. When they tell you that you're nothing without them, 
you know, you believe those things because they condition you to. He wasn't the first and last person in my life that I experienced that with, but it was certainly a moment in my youth that like, it's the reason why I went to, why I got into Nirvana. It's the reason why I took to punk music. It's because it was an escape for me from that experience. Um, and it's like, but it's also a reason why I felt in some ways very insecure for a long time to pursue music. I, I did until I, I stopped making music until I was like 21 when I started a band. It's like five years of just not wanting to touch the guitar or not thinking I could do anything, you know, because I was just very yeah, insecure about it. Yeah. It's upsetting. I, and I think about that stuff with my daughters. I'm like, because I know how, you know, fucking guys like to gaslight all of it. And I'm just like, how do I, how do I educate my daughters to handle this, to navigate that in the future? <clears throat> Thankfully, my partner is much smarter than me and she'll probably do it. <laughs> but it's something I think about because I just, uh, and I had people fuck with my head. So I get how you just like, when someone's good at it, it's just, it's astounding. It, when, and then one day you'll wake up and you're like, how the fuck did I get here? Like, what is happening? Yeah. You know, like I said, it wasn't the first or the last time that yeah. I experienced that. And when I experienced it again, I was like, damn fucking again. Like what the hell? But you don't realize it when it's happening at the time, you only really realize it when you're out of it and you're looking back and then you're like talking to your therapist and you're like, uh, what is like the parallel between all of these experiences? But I don't even know how I got into them in the first place because I also had like very supportive parents, you know, and yeah, they knew what they were doing, but I think, I, I don't know. I was also kind of, I think it's, I, I hope I don't, I can't say for sure. I hope it's easier now for people who are experiencing abuse to come out and say, you know, talk about it, you know, especially after the me too movement. I hope that it's easier for people to speak their minds and to speak their truths and to, you know, protect themselves. But at the time that I was growing up, like, yeah, these people were getting away with so many things. Like, I mean, I remember this particular teacher, like literally like grabbed me by the collar of my shirt and like dragged me down the hallway, choking me. And a teacher walked by, stopped, watched it happen. And then just kept walking because it, like, it was just so much easier to pretend like you didn't see what you just saw than to raise hell about it, especially in Canada, you know, where like, it's so hard to persecute like anybody who's like part of a teacher's union or who even like commits a crime. It fucking takes forever, you know, for them to get any just like to, to be disciplined or for you to see justice for what they did. It takes forever. So yeah, it was, it was a different time and obviously I'm over it now, but it certainly, it certainly defined who I was when I was like a budding artist or whatever. <laughs> you know? What inspired you to go back to music was it just in a voice nagging at your insides there mm, I think I just nothing makes me happier than music you know than like hearing a wonderful song or singing or playing with my friends and that is really how Kills Birds started as Jacob and I the guitarist we started getting together and writing stupid songs together just because we wanted to do something fun. You know, we were like, one day we were like, okay, we're going to write an R and B love song, which we called love tracks. 
you know, and then we like wrote a disco song and then we wrote a pop song and then we wrote high, which is Killsbird. It's like on the first Killsbird's record, a song. And at that point we were like, Oh, well this isn't so bad. You know, like this is actually could be pretty good. We should try playing this live. And, and the whole band thing came organically as a result of that. We never went into it, you know, thinking like we're going to be fucking famous. Like we want to be the biggest band in the world, like from the get go, like let's fucking go. It was very much like it was a sacred place for us to kind of meet up with each other away from all of the other things that were going on in our lives. Like me struggling to develop my filmmaking career Jacob doing his own stuff like that was our like secret sacred like special place was kills birds and then it sort of just grew organically from that you know um into what it is today <laughs> <laughs> it's wild though like because that was an a honest and pure endeavor and for it to sort of flourish says a lot for those sort of efforts. I, you know what I'm, I I hope that sound, did that sound sugary and shitty? <laughs> no, that doesn't sound sh- shitty. But I mean, it's like when you're honest and you're just like, you're, you're purely exploring something. And I think that's what the core of creativity is. And like, so often we get stuck in our heads about like what we're doing and like, Oh, this is good. And then it's like, you guys were just doing something to do it. And that's beautiful. Yeah, I am so thankful that I have Jacob Loeb in my life. I, in a lot of ways, like doing this, like really saved me. Like, it sounds really cheesy to say that, but it's true. Um, Again, it was like in a period of my life where I was trying to pick up the pieces of who I thought I was and, you know, what I thought I could be. And I felt like I didn't belong in L.A. because, you know, I didn't know anybody here. I had no roots here. Like I was here, not even on a green card yet, but on an O one visa, which meant I could only do the work that like I, I like stated I could do and nothing else, but I wasn't like getting that work in the beginning, you know? So it's just like, I just didn't know what to do with my life, you know? And he was there and we worked together and that's really still the core of how cards works. You know, it's just starts with me and him. Uh, writing together, you know, and having fun and forgetting about everything else. And I hope that it stays like that forever because I don't think that we would make good music if it changed. So, What films attracted you to wanting to make films? Kids. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I really like that movie. I just really, I'm always drawn to like youth stories, um, and stories where like kids have to like overcome some kind of adversity. Um, I find that really empowering. Uh, so I, I was really into kids and all of Harmony Corinne's work. Um, and then of course I got into like Paul Thomas Anderson and Andrea Arnold, another really great filmmaker who made a movie called fish tank. That's also about a young girl. Yeah. That's a great film. I love that movie. I fucking love that movie. And when I made my first feature, you know, I had all of those things in mind. It was like, I wanted to tell a story about kids. I still think that's like still the first place that I go when I'm writing something. It's like, I always want to make a story about like a young person who has to overcome something, you know, um, I'm working on something like that now. 
I like small indie movies that are character driven. Fuck those fucking industry people. Fuck they never know what they're talking about. They yeah. Don't. That's the worst. Yeah. They're just like, they're so, I once had like an ensemble, like children's like coming of age story. And I sent it to this production company who will remain nameless. <laughs> but I, they were like, Paramount Pictures. <laughs> Universal Studios. No, um, I sent it to them. And they're like, we love your movie. We love ensemble films. This is great. Let's make it. And then two weeks later, I get an email. They're like, we're not making ensemble films. <laughs> I know. Uh, but it sounds like a really good idea, actually. Thank you. I have to find it. It was a long time ago. And then I got really... I got this manager at the time and I was like, she, I forget who she repped, David Gordon Green. And, or the, she was with the same company as David Gordon Green. They were doing all this cool indie stuff. And I was like, this is perfect for me. But then I think she had a Coke problem. And wh- who I got on the phone every day was a fucking mystery. And one day I was like this great writer with a voice and that's why she was drawn to me and the next day she was like reprimanding me and I was just like fuck this shit so I fired her <laughs> but, but it was just like the, as I call them I like to call the industry the people on the wrong side of the desk because they don't they're just there for some fucked up bullshit reason they don't know what they're doing but they like to think they do I don't know. I always, I always have this like rule. I'm like, oh, they got there because they were working in the fucking accounting department, and then for some reason they got promoted to like head of creative at so and so studios, you know. And you're like, but yeah, I don't know. I think the industry needs like a huge shakeup in general. I think the films that are getting produced, like some of them are amazing, and others, I, I don't know what the criteria is to get your film made anymore. Um, short of knowing somebody who's working for the production company. Yeah. I have a friend who produces films and he strives to do great things. He's got a production company. I don't want to say, but like he'll, you know, he's all over the place. He does a big film and then, but he will nurture and small stuff and cause he likes it, but he's not a, fucking guy who went to law school and then became an executive <laughs> and, yeah, he's, and he's creative and respects creativity and i think that there's a lot like i know a couple people that are working in the industry that strive to do that too i think it's just like i think even they struggle though like getting past like the money men you know and um especially now when i feel like the film landscape is changing so much like you know with like movies no longer having requirements to be shown in theaters in general, you know, films are now going like directly to streaming. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel like films are meant to be seen in the cinema or does it matter? And I said cinema. Oh, you did. (laughs) It It was the loudest thing you said. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I I don't know if I can be a purist and say like films should be seen in cinemas. Like, of course they should be seen in cinemas, but like times are also changing. You know, the way we view everything is changing. The way we listen to music is changing and, um, you know, watch video is changing. So, you know, I don't see a reason to fight it. Yeah. Um, Like dudes like Scorsese and David Lynch are like, Go with technology, like embrace the changes and because it's only going to make your job life easier. And I'm sure I've never edited a f- actual film, but I'm sure digital is way fucking easier. 
I agree with that. I think, I think that some filmmakers are like, Oh, we like film needs to be preserved and like, we need to show in cinema. And I'm like, yeah, easy for you to fucking say when you're already like up there, like one of the biggest directors in the world who can just like request rules of <laughs> get your shit shown in a theater. Like you don't have that luxury. Like young filmmakers don't have that luxury. Very I, few. Maybe I'm not seeing it, but I feel like in an era where you can make films at least easier, you know, low budget, who do that we don't see more into like that there's, or maybe there's not the outlet. But I feel like, you know, if, if, uh, what's his name? Cassavetes was alive today. He would be having a field day with this shit. Like, oh, I can shoot a movie on my phone. Fuck it. Let's do it. Like, which Sean Baker does to an extent, to an extent. I love Sean Baker. He's one of my favorite filmmakers out there right now. Like he's definitely like got it down. You know, he's so fucking like Florida project is like one of my favorite films of all time. Like he's really like. I think revolutionary in a lot of the work that he does. And I think it's because he's embracing new ways of filmmaking, you know, which is cool. Yeah. What I, what I really love is his characters and these people that Tangerine, Starlet, Florida project. I haven't seen the new one yet, but it's a porn guy, but porn, Mm -hmm. but it's like people that our society or the bulk of society looks down on white trash, mom, trans sex worker. And he, shows us shows people their humanity and that they're and i'm like it that's man he's just so good at it (laughs) he really is his writing too and i don't know how he directed that young actress in florida project but her performance in that movie is just like so gut-wrenching um and then the ending of that movie like because of her performance just works so well. He's really great. I haven't seen the new one and the new film with Simon Rex. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Me yeah. Too. Are there any other filmmakers currently that, uh, like Sean Baker that you're into? I ask for myself, my own wisdom uh, to know. Oh man. I don't know. Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, like many people, I feel like I, Forgoed the art of cinema this past year to watch trashy reality TV. So, my partner watches a lot of trashy reality TV. I've gone in the opposite direction where I only watch something if I really want to see it, like Red Rocket or, you know, stuff like that. Otherwise, I've been reading, which uh, is, I don't, I feel pretty good about. I won't, I'm, yeah. I, I've been reading too. Yeah. Nonfiction or fiction? Both. I read Trust Exercise, which is a really great novel. Um, kind of pulled at my heartstrings a lot and reminded me of my, my childhood. I read uh, Interior Chinatown, which I thought was an incredible novel. Um, and I read Dave's memoir, uh, The Storyteller. How is that? Well, you can't really. I love it. I love it. I think it's a great. I think he's a phenomenal storyteller. I'm lucky that I've got to, you know, see him tell these stories in person. You know, but I think also, Jacob said it best once. It's like really great to see somebody in the music industry who's so, like, respected and powerful and successful be such a good person. You know, and be so giving and supportive of of young artists and still love music as much as he does. And that's really cool. And I think, like, reading the memoir just reminds me why I love music so much. 
why I do what I do. And it's inspiring, you know, inspires me to work harder. I think I always gravitate towards books like that. Yeah. How do you, do you like the LA music? Cause you were New York, LA, you're LA now, right? Mm-hmm. Do you like the LA music scene? Or I guess that's a weird question. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. I lived in New York as well. And I didn't, my friends were fucking boring. They just went to the same old man bar every day. And I was like, we're in fucking New York. Like, are you kidding me? We're going to a cop bar and we're in New York city. You fucking. That sounds like the coolest thing to me though. Right now. I don't know. Like I love, I, I know so many artists in, in LA that I love, you know, musicians that I respect, but I feel detached a little bit. Um, I feel like, I feel like there's like a, a club that I'm not a part of sometimes. I don't know. Like maybe I'm just saying that cause I'm a fucking loser who sits at home and like watches TV. But like, I feel, yeah, like there's like clicks, um, everywhere you go. And yeah, I don't know. I, don't I think know. it's okay to sit at home. Cause I was very similar when I was performing regularly. And then if there'd be a show I had to do in LA, I'd just be like, like, that's how I felt. Every, like, the sun would go down, and I was like, I don't want to fucking leave my house. Yeah, LA, to me, feels like a stranger right now. I don't know. I don't know what the city is anymore. Um, because I used to go out, and I used to drink a lot and smoke a lot. And that was kind of my fuel to go out and go to all these places and see these bands. And I don't do those things um, anymore. Did you, you know, quit drinking? Like, I didn't quit drinking, but I don't like, I, I, you know, the extent to which I drink is like a glass of wine or a gin and tonic every few nights. It's not like five gin and tonics a night for, you know, seven days a week. You know what I mean? That's like what I was doing, you know, and I was smoking and I was trying to fucking run away from my lack of employment and my feelings of like uselessness. And I was going out and, and now that I don't do that anymore, I, I don't know what, where my place is in LA anymore. I don't know where I can go. I, I still, I'm still trying to figure that out. Like I feel a lot of anxiety when I go to this place called Zebulon for some reason, because I just like, don't know like who I'm supposed to be there anymore. Like who I'm going to run into, like what's going on in the scene that I obviously missed out on and don't know about, you know? So I'm just kind of in this place now where like, just me and my boyfriend, like sitting like at home, like watching shows or we go for really long walks or we'll go have a drink with like our few friends that, that we know and trust. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like a stranger here. I yeah. think all of that's okay. And I think I'm speaking from my own experience. I've been here 20 years and I felt like when I first, what, are you on the East side? I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the like Silver Lake Las Vilas. Yeah, and I lived I lived Echo, far east side of Echo Park for like my first eight years, and I felt it, it it's a it's a strange city. Like it's it brought out a reclusive. Like I liked learned how to be at home, though I did still go out and drink a lot. And I feel like if you go out and drink a lot, that gives you sort of a not a true sense of the city. It becomes that, and it becomes I feel like drinking separates you from that reality, really. Yeah, I feel like the way that I connect to LA now is like, again, like me and my boyfriend, we go out to eat, try restaurants in like different neighborhoods, and we get a sense of the culture of the city through the food that we're having. And that's exciting to me. 
but again, like, yeah, I don't think I can go to a show anymore and just get like fucking blind drunk and just like do that anymore. I just can't like, that's not, you know, what that's honestly never fulfilled me. I was going to say that's not what fulfills me, but it's never fulfilled me. It's always been a way for me to escape like how depressed I used to be and useless. I used to feel and insecure. I used to feel was by drinking you know so yeah and drinking only fuels that insecurity and it fulfills no one i thought like and i would go do cool shit and be a part of like scenes or whatever but it's a facade it's not real it's fake and it's like you're better off being at home creating or reading or you know i feel like i wasted so many fucking hours being drunk at the fucking shortstop <laughs> oh my god before they had the dancing license you were drunk at the shortstop just you saying that i was like oh. like the i know sh- what that's like yeah. yeah it used to be when i first moved to that neighborhood little joy and the shortstop were completely different bars the shortstop didn't have a dance license it was just like a neighborhood bar with a great jukebox still like you know artists and musicians and and then a mix of working class Mexicans and the little joy was a fucking shithole. Like it was like an old, it felt like, it felt like East village kind of bar, like a divey bar. And it was like, and it was great, but I felt like I, like I was like, felt like I was telling myself I was a part of something, but I was just being a fucking drunk idiot. Yeah, that's how. That's what I was telling myself too. I feel like I've spent like tens of thousands of dollars sitting in <laughs> Stella, like ordering Sophia after Sophia, like, like just sitting there, like watching people come in and out, and like feeling like I was like doing something and like, you know, having a part of like in this city, you know. But I just like wasted so much money and like made myself feel like like absolute shit, you know, and. I still feel really insecure. Obviously I can't even like walk into Zebulon right now, but at least I'm like sober and insecure. Yeah. Well, it's too, it's like, if I look back, I'm like, how many of those people do I talk to? How many of those people are in my life from that era? Zero. Yeah. Like maybe some of them follow me on fucking Instagram and vice versa, but it's like, it was all fucking lies and bullshit. Really? Yeah, and I think that everybody who's still trying to uphold that facade feels that way. They just haven't gotten to a place yet where they can admit that what they're doing is fucking bullshit. I think everybody's like, but it's true. Like, so many people that I know that like present themselves as being like cool or involved, like, everyone's just, everyone's feeling insecure and unsafe and scared about the world that we're living in. True. I I think especially if you're, you know, not like a trust fund kid or maybe you still are. I don't know. I can't compare myself to fucking rich people, but like, I think everybody's feeling insecure and I don't know. I, I think that's why, like, especially in the last few years, like my circle has grown so small, you know, and as a result, also more intimate. I think everyone's kind of scattering. And yeah. As I've, 
gotten older, and this has been going on for a while, I'll fucking cut people. Like, I'm not like literally with a razor blade, but I'll just be like, you, you know, if like, because it's like, I want people who enrich me and I hope I do the same to them. If you're a drain on me, your drama, unnecessary, unnecessary drama or a mess, I don't got time for it, man. I don't see people like I used to. So if I'm going to see you and spend time with you, I want it to be worth something, not fucking drunk babble in a, you know, fighting over the sound of the fucking strokes. I don't know why I picked the strokes. <laughs> you sound the same. <laughs> yeah. Is that the conversation? I like the strokes. They're, they're pretty chill. I, I got no problems with the strokes. I didn't bring them up because I hated them. <laughs> Speaking well, I, of, yeah. They are rich kids, though. Just to kind of throw that out there. <laughs> that is true. That is undeniable. They're like they insanely are. rich kids. Like their their reality is, has always been a, a that of wealth. Yeah. And listen, it doesn't change that you can write great music. I, no. I'm not doing that, but you're, uh, there is a safety net under you. Should you fail? That is not the case for a lot of people. So I don't have that safety net and I know that fucking panic and I know it more so now that I have kids. Cause like I have some work, but I'm like, oh, well, June might suck. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. Yeah. I know exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but you, I mean, you have, I would say you have a very budding, thriving career. In the 21st century, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, I'm, I'm obviously, like, I'm obviously one of the lucky ones in the sense that, like, I get to do my band and I get to have a film career and I get to do both. But I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm like financially like all set and stable. Like we're living in an age where like as a musician, you can't really make money anymore. (laughs) Like the only way to make money is from touring. But like because of Spotify and all those fucking companies, like it's just like eliminated like a very valuable source of income for so many artists that like I cannot choose to just do music even though that's what i would like sometimes you know is to just do music it's insane it's really it's upsetting but then also for as a filmmaker it's like oh you want to do this music video well we have a ten thousand dollar budget for you which means i as a director if i'm lucky get ten percent of that which is like fucking nothing like how do you survive you know making music videos if you're not again one of the extremely lucky ones who gets to make videos for Dua Lipa or whatever, you know, who's awesome. I really like her music, but like, you know, it's hard. It's hard. I feel like I, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly working towards the middle right now. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Nina, I want to thank you so very much for your time I had a great time and this went in directions I couldn't have dreamed of and I mean that in the best possible way because I really strive not to talk about the typical stuff so I'm glad we went in every direction and you then we talked about Dave Grohl who I love I love I'm a huge fan so I don't but I didn't and I love that people like that in those positions like use it for good. And that's how, like, it's just, that's always a positive. Absolutely. Um, well, I had a lot of fun too. This was definitely the most fun I've had on the podcast. So. This is how you talk about me.
Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with the Wire. Please become a Patreon subscriber. If you like, also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you not, and tell your friends about the show. That would mean a lot to me. As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or themattdwyer.com or Conversations with the Wire at the Instagram, and you could learn more about the show, buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening.